This is a Pain Information Network. Uh, September is meeting month. Actually, some of October and some of November. Looking forward to some meetings coming up. I got some great interviews. Miles Day got some others that I think are going to be a real addition. Um, I'm going to be posting them soon, but I'm going to do a, a solo edition today. I'm going to talk a little more about opioids because that is the big burner right now. Everybody wants to know about opioids, what they're doing to us, and what we're doing to them. So let me start right out and jump right in here. Uh, I I think I'm going to start by saying that uh, pain is not an opioid deficiency. In other words, just because you have pain does not mean that you need an opioid. We have other ways of treating. And what does that mean? Well, pain is biopsychosocial. It's biological, psychological, and social. I've said that before, and sometimes it has a spiritual side of things. And opioids can eventually, if used improperly, lead to uh, your life just like the Jerry Springer show, and you don't want that. I'm quoting Connie Z. She's an RN clinical case manager. Um, Okay, so you don't want to be the most powerful person in the room. That's a victim. What you want to be is a participant in your care because um, we're all worried about addiction. Now, the opioid prescriptions are down uh, quite a bit over the past couple of years, but fentanyl and heroin are going up. Now, how are they related? But there's a possibility that because opioids uh, in a pill form or prescription form aren't as easily available, that people are turning to these other substances. And with China and Mexico um, just pumping fentanyl across the border, uh, the problem is uh, availability is there. And you don't know really what you're getting you know, that's what Prince died from and others. And we just don't want anybody to be a statistic. Okay, so what we're all doing is we're looking for that dopamine moment, that little moment where we feel a little better, that steak was great, that movie was great. And what's the front row seat? Taking an opioid, it's easy, and it's not a front row seat anymore. You're the performer. So... You know, these these drugs on the street, are they're predators. They can grab you. They can eat you alive. They can make you feel fantastic. And I want to go there again. Dopamine is the gas for the uh, great engine we call addiction. So. Uh, what are we going to what are we going to do? OK, where are we and where are we headed um, chronic pain is intimately linked with the brain, and that intimate relationship is driven by dopamine. So we seek the dopamine, we seek moving forward, understanding we need treatment, and we're not addicts. Um, I explain this a lot. If you take pain medicine regularly, you're not going to be a, quote, addict. Everybody thinks they're going to be an addict. No, you get dependent on it. That's not... Uh, addiction. You can get tolerance. That's not addiction. But the the terminology is important because if you need something to treat your pain and to be in a better place, there's nothing wrong with taking a pain medication as long as it's used correctly. 
just like antibiotics, antihypertensives, your diabetic medicine. If it's used correctly, it's a good deal. It, it gets you to a better place. All right, so let's take it a little further. It, it, this big push now for uh, evidence-based medicine, what works and what's junk. Well, there's a saying I use that 42.7% of all statistics are made up on the spot. So you can say that evidence-based medicine is a lot of things. It's making the same mistakes with increasing confidence for an impressive number of years. That's clinical experience or evidence-based medicine is perpetuating other people's mistakes instead of your own. Well, (laughs) you know, you make assumptions in chronic pain uh, that the physician or provider of care understands risk and management of any addictive disease or any dependent disease that requiring an opioid or a controlled substance. And persistent failure to treat addiction is, of course, poor medical practice. But failure to prescribe appropriate medications, be they benzodiazepines, opioids, whatever they're going to be, uh, when they're indicated, is also poor medical practice. And so physicians are traditionally uh, trained in allopathic and caring medicine, but they have very little education in pain management or the treatment of addiction. Very, very little and virtually none in addiction. So now uh, the specialists are popping up all over the place. These hokey-dokey clinics are popping up. Um, Of course, Florida leads the way in um, the uh, treatment of addiction and uh, the light and dark side of treating that. So pain is undertreated. We also have a chronic pain problem, um, and I would call that an epidemic too, just like the opioid epidemic. But chronic pain is more of a medical problem. I think the opioid epidemic is more of a substance abuse use issue that has now devolved to the street. We know that chronic pain rewires the central nervous system, and chronic pain itself elevates substantially uh, glutamate, which activates the NMDA receptor, that's the N-methyldeaspartate receptor, which further amplifies pain. And so we look for uh, solutions to turn that dial down, because Pain rewires your brain, and I've talked about it in other podcasts. It's uh, uh, chronification of pain and that sort of thing, and we can go back and revisit that, but it's a very real thing. Pain is inside out as opposed to outside in. It starts with the central nervous system. It it involves a lot of pathways, and as I'm going to be um, geeking out over the next uh, few months, I'm going to talk more and more about glial cells and the importance of glial cells in chronic pain and just in life and <clears throat> what they do to us. We used to think it was back background stroma. It just sat there. It's like you're laying in the bathtub and all that water around you doesn't do much. But, um, you know, that's kind of what a glial cell is. It, we just thought it was just sitting there all this time. But nope, <clears throat> it's got a real reason to be there and it's alive and working so anxiety depression and insomnia can make pain unbearable no question about it we call that a comorbidity and a comorbidity is usually what takes people down so let's let's talk terminology 
All right, abuse. What is abuse? Abusive uh, medication for purposes other than what it's prescribed um, is what leads addicts to become what they are. So addiction is impaired control over drug use, compulsive drug use in particular, and continued use uh, despite, despite harm, and it induces cravings. All right, that's that's not the American Society of Addiction Medicine uh, definition. That one is it, it's it's gotten it's gotten kind of big. Um, it's probably more complicated than it has to be, but so be it. And what it is, um, it's like a wild goose. Tolerance, a physiologic state caused by regular use of an opioid. And you have to use increased doses. And what do you mean increased doses? You get tolerant. You have to use a lot more of the same dose to get the same effect. So, all right, let's go to dependence. This is a big one. Is not by itself addiction. It's a normal physiologic uh, state. Uh, It can be Starbucks coffee. It can be uh, the most powerful opioid we know, uh, carfentanil. It can be anything. But... It's an expected uh, result from something, and it's characterized by withdrawal. So if you have a chronic exposure to certain medications that substantially increase the reward pathway, that involves dopamine, um, well, you're going to get physically dependent, and it's variable in how that happens. It has a lot to do with um, genetics, and it sometimes coincides with uh, addiction, sometimes not. And this leads to tolerance. And this is this is really important stuff because it's not addiction. Tolerance, getting used to a drug, as people call it, is not addiction. It's a it's neuroadaptation to um, drug changes, and it it can result in increased use and need, and it varies. Um, we're genetically different. We're all very different. We're different molecules, and that's a good thing. And it. it it really depends on what type of problem you have, particularly what type of pain you have. A young people, much higher risk with tolerance, and this in itself leads to the problem. Yep, you, you get your tolerance, you need more drugs, and you need more drugs to not feel crappy when it starts to wear off. Hedonia, and you start to um, take more, and you start to get... Uh, a little sporty, um, and you get arrested. So you get arrested, and you spend uh, a couple weeks in the jail. You come back out, and you go right back to your dealer. Same little packet of uh, whatever it is, fentanyl, heroin, whatever you took before. You have no tolerance. You overdose and die. That's uh, been shown over and over in uh, data models that... um, it's probably one of the biggest problems we have in addiction medicine and the overdose epidemic is because people have variable tolerance and they don't know what it means or what it is in their body. What I do today has nothing to do with tomorrow. Oh, yeah? Well, the question mark comes out. So um, 
you know, these young people, you know, first second time users, they're overdosing and dying and that no, 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 no. It's the repeated user that dies, and this is why. Another reason is they need more and more drug because of tolerance, and they finally hit that threshold, that respiratory divide, and they quit breathing. Or they have um, cocaine, whatever, seizure that doesn't stop, or their heart infarcts. It's this, tolerance. This is the one you got to watch, okay? Know thy names and save thyself. All right. So it all comes down to the cellular environment. It's sensitized. The sensitized cellular environment. When a drug goes to a cell, it turns on certain parts of the cell, G proteins, whatever, it doesn't matter. That's in the weeds. But it leads to transcriptive events or building events in the cell, which ends up in a result. And we have two nerves, uh, names. We got a lot of nerves, but two names. Pharmacokinetics, a drug effect is directly related to its concentration at the site of action. Okay, interpretation, what we do to the drug. That's pharmacokinetics. I don't know, it's geeky. It's important. Pharmacokinetics, uh, it has to do with drug movement and concentration, and this has to do with tolerance and dependence. It's in blood, tissues, fluids, etc. It's influenced by how you get the drug in you, your gut, elimination and excretion, kidneys, uh, glucuronidation through your gut, liver, whatever, distribution, how it spreads out, and metabolism, how you get rid of the damn thing. And that's uh, sometimes liver and other things. Pharmacodynamics, effect, biological and physiologic what the drug does to us, how the drug works on us. So it goes to the receptor. It causes a change at the uh, G receptor, and it leads to a response ultimately through a lot of different events. So you're going to say, well, I'm taking a drug. What does all this mean? Well, it means a lot as any drug has its own uh, roadmap its own roadmap where it goes and what it does to you a a drug has a time scale from milliseconds to seconds to minutes to hours and it's um it's important for physicians and other providers to understand this but the problem is um it's so variable and so difficult um with all the drugs out there that we have uh trouble sometimes making distinctions all right so for example in milliseconds uh you get cellular events and it's like nicotine oh god that first hit in the morning and feeling better <sighs> to getting to the cell causing those transcriptive events that i talked about that takes a little more time it can be seconds it can be minutes um <clears throat> So let's say it's uh, it, it's up to minutes. That'd be like insulin, and then up to hours to over days. That can lead uh, to genetic changes uh, and cellular events, protein synthesis, etc. And that'd be like estrogen. All right. So geeking up a little more. 
metabolism. And I'm not going to go through CYP too much today. Uh, I'm going to go through it later. Uh, but I am going to introduce the concept because this is going deep, deep into the weeds. We have ways of getting rid of drugs. And as much as the drug works on you, you have to understand how it gets out of you. Not understanding how it gets out of you leads to problems. Let's call this system the CYP system. And we're going to add a number to it, 450. We'll also talk about UDP, glucuronal, SYL transferases, UGTs, okay? I'm just going to call them UGTs for now, or glucuronidation. What's, what's key with this is <clears throat> this is where all the safety issues come in with drugs. You must understand, or the provider must understand, what it means uh, to you and how you get rid of the drug as much as how you take the drug because that's how effects happen. If you have a drug that is metabolized by one pathway in the CYP system and you <clears throat> take something else, um, and you'd be surprised, it could be grapefruit juice, that competes with that same pathway, you're completely altering how the drug works and if it will work. So, yeah, does it matter? Absolutely it matters. Um, 2D6, um, 7 to 10% of Caucasians uh, are, are poor metabolizers of drugs that go through 2D6 pathways because we don't have it or they don't have it, uh, the 2D6 pathway working well, so they're poor metabolizers. Does that matter? Yep. Any drug that uses uh, the 2D6 pathway uh, is going to kind of be screwed up. So sometimes drugs don't work. That's why they don't work is because the pathway is messed up or there's a competition with that pathway. Take, for example, codeine. Some people say codeine doesn't work. Well, yeah, it works. The FDA says it works. Well, no, it's a 2D6 pathway drug. It's metabolized to what we think is the active part of codeine, um, it's metabolized to morphine, but if you don't have 2D6, codeine doesn't work, right? See how this is evolving? Um, and <clears throat> the most abundant pathway, the CYP3A4, it can vary 30-fold in individuals um, in activity uh, in the liver. It's also found in the GI, so it can affect uh, variations in absorption. So that's why we got to really know this stuff, and we have to be able to translate it. And why we get in trouble with drugs like methadone. So if, if you're messing around with methadone and you're taking drugs that mess, mess around with how methadone goes away, methadone's half-life is huge, it's long, it's messy. And that's why we have so many methadone deaths. 3% of prescriptions are methadone, 30% of deaths are related to methadone. We have another drug I'm going to talk about called levorfenol. It's a good, really good choice of a drug to alternate out methadone. So if you're on methadone, uh, levorfenol might be a better choice except for its cost. So what is CYP? Well, uh, CYP stands for Family 
subfamily and form. So the family is a letter, the subfamily is a letter, second letter, and the form is a number. So like CYP3A, okay, that metabolizes about 50% of the drugs. Okay, we're getting it? Okay, elimination and excretion. <clears throat> you got to get rid of these drugs so you, you can take your next drug. Otherwise, it accumulates, and that's where we get into messy complications. Elimination, it's metabolizing or excretion of the drug. It can be the parent drug or it's the regular drug, or it's metabolized. And what people also don't understand is, for example, hydrocodone, a lot of its analgesic activity comes from the fact it got metabolized by the CYP system, and its secondary drug, hydromorphone, is the one that adds a lot of analgesia. Not all of it, but a lot of it. So if you can't metabolize hydrocodone, it ain't going to work well. All right. That all, all that means is you just change to another drug, oxycodone, or something that might be better for you. Excretion, removal without changing the drug. You're just getting rid of the darn thing. I'm throwing you out into the trash and clearance. Um, <clears throat> this is re- is related to a rate, a time interval, and we call that a half-life, 50% change in the drug in time to or from, uh, from a steady state. So a steady state takes about five half-lives. Um, in other words, you've got to take the drug to five half-lives. Half-life? What's a half-life? Okay, the drug goes in, it peaks, it starts coming down 50% of its life. Okay, take it again. You take it again, you take it again, you take it again. Five half-lives, you get a steady state. You got a steady noise. It's the steady background noise. And so you got to get rid of this drug, and that's clearance. So how long does that take? That has to do with half-life. That has a lot to do with just playing the drug. All right. So... Last comment on tolerance and dependence, and I'll get out of this geek world. There's normal tolerance, but with repeated exposure to the drug, you get um, tolerance. And what that does is it moves the drug to the right. Okay? So, to think normal the first time you take the drug, there it is. Now you're two weeks into it. I got to take two X of those drugs to get the same effect. That's tolerance. Now, dependence does the same thing. You have a normal response to a drug and it goes to the right. But if it starts going to the left, you feel crappy. That's tolerance. And um, you, you just start getting into this place and I'll call it hedonic tone. I'm going to reference uh, uh, Webster on that. Um, Over time, the dose of the opioid, to get whatever effect you're going to have, it has to be increased. That's called a hedonic set point. In other words, the dose to achieve the same effect, euphoria, anxiolysis, uh, analgesia, has changed because you're pushing the drug to the right. So an inexperienced user, younger user, or experienced older user needs more drug to get its effect. And that's that's pretty much the basis of uh, 
of our drug talk here. We're gonna we're gonna step it up uh, next podcast on opioid metabolism. We're gonna talk a little bit about selection and the treatment of neuropathic pain with uh, opioid agents. And kind of homework, remember my five rules of treatment. Rule four is know thy meds. Know five classes and pick five medications. So, you know, the, the ones I, I like to talk about are serotonin, uh, norepinephrine, reuptake inhibitors, tricyclic antidepressants. Come on, that's amitriptyline. Everybody knows all these. Uh, opioids. Ooh, there's some interesting ones here. We'll talk a little bit about levorphanol. Uh, the methadone substitute, opioids, plain old, uh, opioid agonist. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the buprenorphines, the partial agonist. And <clears throat> why it's important for the consumer to know, because you're walking in there and you're getting a drug that can literally kill you. It has to do with your health, your overall health. Remember, we called it comorbidity. It has a lot to do with metabolism, your physiology, your genetics, um, other drugs you're taking, <clears throat> your ability to tolerate or tolerance, your previous dependency, and your potential for addiction. That's the reality when we get into uh, going to the doctor's office and picking up these meds. It, it hasn't had anything to do with me and a prejudicial look at somebody when they come in. I don't care if you've been an addict before. I don't care if you're, uh, you know, if you're... 68, 78 years old, and you've had heart disease, renal disease, hepatic disease, previous alcoholic. I don't care. i got to make the right decision because, remember, <clears throat> not treating is bad medical practice. Over-treating is bad medical practice. we got to find the right door to go through. Okay, that's it. See you.